welcome back to the different podcast. This episode, we listened to Randall interview our user researchers for NHS jobs. And it is an interesting one. They bring up the Hawthorne effect, which really does have an effect uh, virtually and in the room. So do listen and enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Different Podcast. My name is Randall Whitmore. I'm the head of growth here at Different. And joining me on today's podcast, I have Marissa Brown, Erin Gray and Stephen Palmer, who are all user researchers who are working on the NHS Jobs Project that we're currently working on with the NHS Business Services Authority. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how user research has played a central role in delivering the brand new NHS Jobs Service. Erin mentioned some of the user groups that or the, the um, organisations that you're working with. Can you just give me a bit of an overview of who they are? Uh, I can give you it from, from Team 2's point of view, because Team 2 were one of the first involved in something that was looking from a candidate side. Um, searches very, very specifically about the candidate. Uh, and whilst it is used to some degree by uh, the employers that use NHS jobs, uh, it's mainly there so that candidates can find roles and can find them easily. Uh, so... In that sense, a candidate is anyone potentially that wants to work for the NHS. It's a really big group and it can include everything from a band to admin or clerical role right up to someone I spoke to recently who was looking for non-executive board roles. Um, so it can run the full gamut in that sense. And there are very, very a large wide range of, of needs because of that. Um, but we're also dealing with employers as well. So uh, in terms of employers, they can be anything from a GP local practice right up to uh, a foundation trust. Uh, generally, I've, I've spoken to, for example, for reporting uh, three or four different trusts uh, with regards to what they need out of, out of reporting. So it's a really, really wide base of users, and there's, there's a number of different groups involved. Um, yeah, I've had experience with both, but um, uh, yeah, it, it's it's a kind of a, a big bucket that people can fit into and, and be potentially a user of the service. I think another interesting point, just to tag on to what Stephen was saying there as well, is um, is obviously we've got we've got the applicant side, and, and Stephen quite rightly mentioned the employer side, um, but within the employer types, there are a couple of different versions. So this um, the NHS jobs system has to account for. Um, employers who could be absolutely massive like a large um, trust or foundation as well as providing the same sort of service if you like or a, a service to um, smaller employers such as GP practices or healthcare centres um, so it kind of it's not one size fits all and that's also what makes the work quite interesting because we have to ensure that everything that we're looking at and we're testing will can be applied um, to both those those user groups because they have very different needs that's fascinating and it's good to hear the that the service is looking at both sides of the fence um you both the hiring manager side and also the the job applicant side from what i understand the prior to, to us coming in there was like a i think there was a pre-existing job service um and uh, the work we've done is kind of transformed that entire service essentially so uh when we look at the kind of problems that the 
the thing that we're working on now is trying to solve. Can somebody give me like a brief overview of, uh, of the project? And so we've talked a bit about the users, but what are the problems that we're trying to solve and what's the sort of vision of the project? Yeah, um, I can say a little bit on this. So overall, the NHS job service and its main purpose is to get people recruited into the NHS as quickly and easily as possible. Um, we've had a recent global health crisis that has meant that this is even more required than ever before. Um, obviously, it's, it's required all the time. But when you have something like the pandemic, pandemic we've been experiencing, uh, it's even more so. Um, the, the speed of recruitment and getting people into roles is absolutely essential. Um, so really, the overall aim of the project is to make the NHS better. And we want to do that by ensuring that the correct people can find roles that they would like to take on within the NHS and employers are able to uh, confirm that they are correct for that role, make sure that they're the right person, organize interviews uh, and get them employed as quickly as possible. Um, and NHS jobs is wanting to do a majority of that work and then outside of that there are needs of employers that are uh, kind of tangential to that things like reporting they, they need to know um, for example um, time to hire uh, averages and they need reports on equality and diversity uh, just to take from what I'm doing most recently which is the reporting side of things and these are tangential to the purpose, but still indirectly aid with that. If a time to hire is seen to be low, then it allows that particular organization to reorganize their resources and, and make sure that process is improved internally. Um, so yeah, our, our, our overall aim is to make the NHS better essentially, but we're doing so by ensuring the right people get the right roles uh, and can easily find those. Uh, and can easily apply for them. Yeah, um, just to build on what Stephen said. Um, so for instance, I've been working on the workflow dashboard area of um, NHS jobs, which is how recruiters tend to see the work that they need to do from the end-to-end -end process, so from advertising all the way to actually hiring that person. And one of the things we found out from doing research um, in that space is that it does take a lot longer than needed for people to actually, for organisations to actually hire the correct people. And that, as you can imagine, costs money. Um, it costs money in uh, finding uh, contracts and bank staff to fill in permanent roles before they've actually um, got the permanent employee in. Um, and so, yeah, part of that is also saving NHS a bunch of money. I know it's in the millions. Um, I'm not going to give you a direct figure, but it's definitely a lot of money. Yeah, amazing. I think the, the efficiencies that the, the service can gain um, from trying to, you know, make as much of it as uh, user friendly for the people who are administrating the job applications as well is, um, is key and centralising the whole process as well so that you've got these multiple trusts and GPs being able to use the service will, will undoubtedly um, save a, a huge amount of money going forward, considering the process shouldn't be that different across organisations, right? Generally speaking, no. In terms of order and in terms of the stakeholders involved in the process, it definitely does change. Um, also in terms of the size of the organisation, um, so you might have one recruitment advisor or recruitment manager that does 
all of the equipment for the whole organization if it's like a small gp practice for instance however if it's like a large trust you've got whole teams of people working on one thing um they recruit multiple different roles so the process might be different for different roles as well um so roughly in terms of the stages it can be the same um but yeah in terms of the order and who's involved and what is actually involved within each stage um yeah that can differ so i know that part of the vision for the project um with this new service is that um is that there's no longer that need or there's no gap with NHS jobs where users feel they need to use a third party provider. So there's also, as well as saving money with the efficiencies, there's also um, money saving there if they can move back to that, to that kind of public service. Excellent. So that brings me on quite nicely to my next question, which is quite broad, um, but I've got a team of user researchers here, which is great um, to give me their, their different takes on it, I guess. Uh, but um, my question is, you know, how has user research helped on delivering this project uh, to get it to where it is now from where it was before? I would say that user research is, in most cases, the, uh, the source of information from which we determine how we shape the service to some degree. Uh, in a lot of cases, we are doing research that is exploring needs that haven't necessarily been explored before. We may be confirming or rebuting uh, assumptions, or we may be making our own new assumptions based on that. But actually, the, the amount of assumptions we try to make is minimal. Assumptions are uh, not useful uh, when you can actually go out and get the data. They're not as useful when you can actually go out and get the data. Uh, and so that's our aim as part of our work with the NHS BSA, is to ensure that when something goes out to release, to be available to either private beta testers or the public eventually, that uh, it's taken their point of view into account. And so uh, the service will then be more readily used, more easily used, um, will cause less frustration, uh, and ultimately will uh, help people get into roles within the NHS quicker and more efficiently. Excellent. Erin, Marissa, any different takes on how you feel user research has helped this project? I mean, obviously, <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you're probably in the wrong room if you want to hear anything other than user research is absolutely <laughs> vital to any, any project. Um, one, of the, one of the things I do think um, user research helps with, so is to kind of help the people who are making decisions think of the people um it sounds a bit sounds a bit hippy dippy actually that but um in terms of some of the very real quotes that you get and very real struggles people have i think sometimes it's easy making decisions in a room away from those people and the impact isn't always evident and then it is only when you go out to users and you you know you bring back the things that they said or the feelings that they had or even the kind of leaps that they make with their thinking um which actually you would never you would never be able to hypothesize in a million years that they would assume this thing because of this. Um, once those things get into the room, it really does change the, the direction of, of projects and the decisions made or the prioritization. That's another thing is that even if something is deemed as, well, whether it's deemed as important or not important, that user research really can focus, um, you know, how urgent or critical that element is to the user experience and, and where, 
you know where development needs to happen quicker than perhaps it might have been originally scheduled for so it's it changes the scope and it changes the the urgency um so yeah it's uh but it's only ever as good as the people who listen to it and i'm sure the guys would agree um that it's you know it's a cliche that user research is a team sport but it, it genuinely is it takes every all the team to buy into it to attend show up be part of it listen to it um and then ultimately down to the pos to make those decisions based on recommendations because ultimately you could have the best ur team in the world um but if if um no actions are taken off the back of it it's all it doesn't matter <laughs> it's all for nothing <laughs> I hope that kind of answers your question. Sorry, it was a bit chatty that. No, it's perfect. Thank you. And uh, a good point on that as well, actually. Um, with the UK population being around 67 million, there are 60 to 7 different ways of looking at something in the UK alone. Uh, almost every single one of those will have some interaction with the NHS over their lifetime um, at some point. And so... Uh, there are, I'll say, 67 million different viewpoints on the NHS, on individual doctors, on people that they see, uh, and on the NHS job service. We potentially cover both current NHS staff and anyone who wants to be part of the NHS. So when you take that 67 million, uh, there's a good chunk of that that actually could use the NHS jobs website. Uh, and that means that we have to take into account all their viewpoints. Now, they're not necessarily all going to be um, unique in every aspect. There are going to be things that are trends within uh, the way they see things. And I think our main purpose is to, is to take those into account. Um, like Aaron says, it starts with the user because they're the one that's going to be using the service. If they can't use the service, then uh, they can't it's it's they're not they're not we're losing them as a user so we've got to ensure that they're taken into account right from the very beginning um and we've got to ensure that when we're taking a look at the the service that we're putting out there for them that it it works for them uh, and that it can move forward uh, with the needs they may have as uh everything develops around us amazing thanks so I completely agree with all of you, you know, user needs need have to be at the heart of everything that we're delivering. And um, it is absolutely crucial to have user research as part of our, our design and development process and delivery process. Um, Chris, I wonder if, you know, on the back of that, could you talk me through some of the user research activities that you've done? You know, is it something you, you do once on the project that you've done once on the project and then you leave it, you know? Is it ongoing? What what kind of activities have, have you done? Can you give us a bit of an insight? Um, it's definitely not one and done. User research is definitely not that simple. Um, but no, we tend to mainly, especially during lockdown, um, do a lot of usability testing, um, especially during lockdown and during private beta where we've got quite tangible concepts now. And all we have to do is kind of test them, iterate on them, make sure that they actually work for the various types of users we need to speak with. So, um, yeah, so we tend to do a lot of usability testing in terms of showing people prototypes of certain areas of the website, um, getting their feedback on it, getting them to do certain tasks on the system to make sure it kind of, it would generally fit in their context in real life situations. 
Um, and we don't just do that with one person. I think the most I've done it on one on one aspect of research is about 10 different users. And they spanned across, they were mainly employers and they all spanned across very small GP practices, armed event bodies, um, uh, large HR shared service type, um, I don't know what to call those, organisations, and then um, also secondary trusts secondary care trust um, and finding out what each of those people need from one thing is very important so uh, yeah so taking them through the task iterating that making sure we then amend a design based upon everything that we hear we also I also analyze those user needs in terms of thematic analysis so I get all of those different perspectives and find common themes in order to feed back to the rest of the teams, the designers specifically, as well as the um, product owners and business analysts. So we can therefore create user stories and figure out how we're going to move next, how, um, how we're going to prioritise the work that needs to come out of it. I think the point there is that it's not a set of forget sort of activity. Um, so I guess, Erin, how, how does that differ to some of the activities that you've been involved in? Um, so I've been quite lucky actually during this um, contract I've had the opportunity to do a, a range of methodologies just purely based on some of the sprint work that I've been given um, so um, one of the projects um, for example was with a group of users who are quite difficult to make contact with um, and that was for medical recruitment so they're specialist teams that sit only within trusts particularly um, well, they don't. They, all GPs hire medically, but the, but the people we really wanted were the people in trusts. Um, and so because they were so difficult to get to and we had um, data on them, I got to do a survey for those people in particular. So that was nice. Um, I've also just ran a diary study with um, a new API uh, pilot scheme that the NHS Jobs is running with certain trusts. So that was uh, great to do one of those because they don't always come along and there's not always... Um, it has to be the right kind of circumstance for the data that you want to run some of these methodologies. You can't just go around doing diary studies. It has to be like a certain amount of time and certain number of people. So that everything was right to do one in this instance. So that was good to, to do one of those. Um, and then as Marissa said, um, quite a lot of usability testing, a little bit of discovery stuff to kind of build up um, kind of the, the picture for the designers to go off and do those prototypes for us to, to go off and do the usability testing. Um, so there has, especially in lockdown, um, there has been a lot of remote sessions. Um, I don't know if I'm coming on to something you're going to touch on again later, um, but we have we have been doing a lot remotely. Um, so obviously that that hampers some of the stuff that we might like to do. Um, so for example, where you might want to go in and do a workshop with somebody, or um, it's not that these things are impossible to do remotely, but if there are better ways of gathering that data remotely, um, it's not always best to continue doing the method you would do if you could all be in a room type thing uh, so but yeah I've, I've done it got to do quite a range here and um, and that's the thing with research as well is that it's you need to really be adjusting that to dependent on what you want to find out excellent so it's quite a nice wide range of activity between the two of you there Stephen what about yourself you're on a different work stream within the project so anything different in terms of the sort of activities that you've been doing around user research on the majority, no. Uh, so usability testing is, is the biggest tool that we have, especially as uh, remote uh, times are upon us. 
uh, a usability test doesn't necessarily just involve the prototype and tasks for the prototype, but generally it'll involve a semi-structured conversation at the beginning uh, that will explore needs and perhaps uh, if something interesting comes up there, uh, we'll focus on that a little bit to get more info on that. And we may well, in, in fact, then in our next user research, um, talk about that with the next candidate um, to see if there's any ongoing continuing themes uh, on that topic. Uh, but usability testing is, is kind of the biggest tool. Uh, in addition to that, we've attempted to do uh, some work with uh, questionnaires and surveys, emailed to varying levels of success. Uh, we also, I also did for search in the really early days, uh, an online card sort, uh, which used a tool that would allow an individual, we used it in a ranking sense, but essentially a card sort allows you to take uh, a number of different terms that may be related to something. So it could be most commonly used for a navigation menu. Uh, you, you may have, say, a range of products and it asks a, an individual, a participant, to organize those into groups. Uh, so you may set those groups, uh, or they may set those groups, in fact, in some cases, that's the, the difference between an open and a closed card sort, uh, with open being where the participant will actually decide the names of those groups and group these items together. Uh, but a closed is where you as a researcher have already set groups in place and you want participants to organize items into those groups. We used it in a ranking sense, so our groups were set. We had a closed card study, but our groups weren't uh, groups of themes, our groups were uh, ratings. So everything, so we had uh, essentially five, a Likert scale of five, from uh, very good to very bad, uh, or very important to not very important. That was, that was the terms that we used for it. And then we were using it to enhance our search research. And so we were looking at what items in the search results participants considered to be the most important when it comes to information that displays for a role within search. Uh, amazingly, we were displaying roughly eight different items within just one result on the search page. Uh, so that includes job title, hours, pay, uh, closing date for the application when it opened, uh, and a brief description of that particular uh, role. We've actually narrowed that down somewhat now. So we're displaying a little less information, but we know that the information is important because when we did the card sort, we took any that got uh, a majority uh, bad or uh, unimportant or not important score and we removed that and one of those was the short description at the beginning uh so that was something slightly different i i'd also want to do a card uh, it's not a card so i'd also want to do a diary study for the uh reporting work that we're doing at the moment but unfortunately um erin had just the right circumstances and i i didn't uh when we were about to start or plan that work uh covid hit and so recruitment for those first six weeks or so, where it was extremely difficult. We were, we were essentially limited to people that we'd already spoken to. Uh, and that made it a little tricky for me to uh, actually start the card sort at that time. Uh, sorry, not card sort, diary study. Uh, to start the diary study at that time. But we are now, uh, 
uh, it's, it's like it was great to hear that Aaron had managed to get a diary study going because it's a it's a really interesting way of of measuring needs in in some respects and it would have been way better for reporting compared to what we did if uh, if hindsight is used but unfortunately it wasn't possible and so we've got to work with what is possible instead um, but yeah uh, the the card sort was the fairly unique thing we did as part of search other than that lots of uh, usability testing, a little bit of discovery um, work where we, we have people in sessions and we get them to use their existing reporting tools, for example, uh, so we can see what they, what they need out of those and how they use them and what difficulties they have with using them. Uh, so that could almost be considered competitor analysis to some degree. Uh, and yeah, I say in, with each of the, the usability test sessions, I'll generally speak with the, the participant for 15 or so minutes and within that aim to get some information that perhaps you wouldn't get just out of showing them temp uh, a, a prototype awesome a wide range of activity from all of you then which is really good and some different um approaches and, and, and techniques which is great to hear um aaron you did touch on it briefly um and and um as did you steven so the in-person stuff so um we'll, we'll talk about what how um how you're finding things in a remote first user research world in a moment but when we look back pre-covid um you know how much user research would you have been doing in person and what would that have normally involved that you can't currently do um due to uh, social distancing and whatnot i know for me because i did actually start during covid this is going to be purely hypothetical however i do envision for the research that I've had to do, because it's mainly prototype testing, I expect that it would have been probably a half and half split because while remote is the only thing you can do right now, um, pre-COVID, remote wasn't off the table, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, sometimes it is just easier to do remote testing if there's like travel restrictions or like any sort of problem there, or if it's or if context isn't completely clean. Um, and a lot of the time, it is nice to watch users doing things within their own context. So it is nice to go to someone and speak to them within their own environment. It makes them more comfortable and it also shows us what they would normally um, do. In their, it, it gives ecological validity. I don't know how to say that in layman's terms, but it makes them, you know, they're, they're in their, their, their natural habitat. They're going to do what they naturally do more likely. And... But um, yeah, so I'd envision that would be a bit of half and half because uh, regardless of making them test a prototype and it's not something that they would, they're not doing it naturally, they're doing it, they know that they're doing a test, if that makes sense, they're not actually going into the system to actually get something done. So I think I still probably would have kept remote testing going, um, but if I did have opportunities to go and speak to people in certain respects, uh, I probably would have taken that chance. Excellent. And um, Stephen, did you get a chance to do much in part? Because I know, Erin, you said you joined just as lockdown was going on, but um, was there much uh, in person prior to lockdown that you were doing, Stephen? Yeah, um, I would say, actually, pretty much what Marissa said, and that roughly half of the sessions that we were running in terms of usability testing sessions were uh, in person. Um, they were in the NHSBSA building generally. And what was great about them is that 
we were able to use the resource around us, which was the NHS BSA staff, as part of the work in a lot of cases. Um, this, this whilst I was, I was doing the, the search work whilst I was doing the in-person sessions. And so potentially anyone in the building could use the NHS job service as a candidate instead of as a employer. And so it was all uh, a service that potentially they would use uh, to, to kind of um, extend on what Marissa said a little bit as well. I, I completely agree that actually you can make people more comfortable uh, when you're doing this work in person. I think one of the limitations of online has been um, that removal of human contact. And it's, it sounds wishy-washy, but at the same time, it's got some merits in, in social science research methods. So there's, a, there's an effect called the Hawthorne effect, which is that a user will act differently when they are being observed. And it's kind of a strange extension of John... Bentham's, uh, Jeremy Bentham's theory on uh, the panopticon, which was a prison design essentially that had a central column and allowed prison guards to look down wings of the prison so that prisoners felt they were consistently being observed. Um, the same kind of theory comes into play with like CCTV cameras. The, the aim is, is that it's a deterrent rather than actually wanting to record a crime. The fact that you're being recorded will change behavior. And the same thing happens with research to some degree. In some cases, you may find that a user is being more explanatory than they would normally be, and they're going into more detail as to what they're doing. Thus, they are performing a task maybe slower than they normally would, or they're not using the usual shortcuts that they, they would to insert content or things like this. Uh, and in some cases, it has the opposite effect. People think that because they're being observed, they're being judged or rated in some way. And so it can cause people to try and do things as quickly as possible to prove that they are a good worker in some way. So as a user researcher, one of the things that we do have to take into account is making sure they're aware they're not being tested. Um, whenever we do any of this, we're not testing any individuals whatsoever. We're testing a service. And if anything happens whilst you're using that service, it's not your fault. It's the service's fault. There is something incorrect with the service that we can perhaps improve in order to stop that from happening. Incredible. And it's nice to hear that the theory as well um, behind, well, say the theory, some of the, the research that's been done into that area um, regarding the Hawthorne effect as well and those sorts of considerations that are I taken. Really, I think I've really kind of summarised that. And you'll, if you read into it, there is a, a lot more to unpack on, on the Hawthorne effect. But that's, that was my understanding of it, especially in relation to user research. Amazing. And you covered some of the challenges there that you get in, I think, that you know, would you say that was... I mean, Erin and, and Marissa, feel free to pitch in here, but what Stephen's mentioned there is one of the challenges of um, doing remote-only research by comparison. Do you agree with that um, being the key challenge, or is there anything else that you'd find as a something additional uh, in terms of challenges when trying to do completely remote user research? Um, the thing about the Hawthorne effect is it can affect both remote and in-person. Um, in person, it feels like that person is physically, if it's in person, sorry, ah, there we go, right, if it's in person testing, um, 
the researcher physically being present could have an actual effect on somebody and it makes them like they know they're being tested because there's someone kind of bearing down on them um even though you know we're not that threatening i'd hope i hope we're not but um and with remote testing it's the same um especially if i tell uh if i tell them a participant i'm going to record the session now there might be you know some sort of nervousness there so kind of as Stephen said you would have to um reiterate to them that they're not being tested we're testing the thing so feel free to rip it apart it does not work if it doesn't work it's not your fault it's system's fault so it is yeah it's very good to reiterate that i'd say another issue though with remote testing is the availability of users uh so not um every user especially more on the applicant side of things than the employee side um not every user has access to technology um, or the technology to use video conferencing software. So we're potentially losing a big chunk of users by just doing remote testing. And even if they do have access to technology, um, there's different levels of um, technological competence. Uh, I know on the government website, there's like a digital competence scale. That's not what it's called, but it's something of that. It's called something like that. Um, and there are some people who do specific tasks in the technology and they wouldn't do anything outside of it and video conferencing might not be that thing. So we might be losing people who aren't as technically competent as others. Um, so I'd say that's also a problem. Erin, oh, anything else that you'd add around some of the challenges of remote only testing? Um, I think I think the guys have covered it pretty well. I mean, the only other one is, is a ridiculously obvious one, but <laughs> in the sense that um, if you're sat in a room with somebody, there's usually very little interruption because it's been planned for. Whereas if you're in your bedroom and you have two kids downstairs and a husband in the house and all sorts going on, like the toaster sets off the fire alarm and the kids run in asking for water fights, like that kind of family intrusion. I mean, this is very specific to lockdown. <laughs> um, but in that sense, that's been quite difficult as well. Things like... Um, you know internet connections not just our own as researchers we can do as much to to kind of hope that we're we're prepared for that but um even with like you know candidates as well and, and and family interruptions on their side as well there's distractions um so it's i know some of these are very lockdown specific but i think that they also play into the way that the tone of the ur session as well um sometimes it can be good and it can break some ice um <laughs> it can make you, you appear far more human than you might want to want to appear but um i'd say that that's probably been one of the challenges of doing everything purely remotely um but i the second um what stephen and marissa say especially around the um the competency the uh, assisted digital stuff and we we won't probably be speaking to the people who are at the lower end of those ability scales just because they probably don't feel confident to sign up for the research more than anything um so that that's that is a real um that is a loss from the from the testing that we can do but again that's not really down to the remote nature that's more lockdown specific because <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> I, you know, i'm sure it's a similar challenge that many user researchers are facing uh whilst in a similar situation of course i would say there's one more uh, as a possible issue with research remote and it's just the technical side of it in the sense that you're reliant upon an internet connection that's stable uh, to get good quality audio across. You're reliant on having technology, as has already been mentioned, you may not have access to that type of thing. 
uh, and you're reliant on uh, services like Zoom and Google Meet and these services staying up and staying up with good quality. Towards the beginning especially, there was a lot of throttling happening on these services. So potentially you were getting lower quality video, lower quality recordings and lower quality calls. Uh, plus everyone had suddenly gone from office environments to working from home, if they could. There were a lot of people that obviously couldn't. Um, so there was a massive shift to online services like this and it did cause issues in the beginning. I think now actually it's improving. Uh, unfortunately, my personal internet connection isn't. Uh, so I still get the odd blur and interruption and it's, it's natural, you know, it's going to happen, but it's an annoyance, especially when you're trying to get vital information out of users that, that could really have a benefit to their service and find out when you go back to the recording that it fuzzed out at that point. Yeah. I can't imagine how frustrating that might be. So what we'll do then, I'll just wrap up with my last couple of questions if that's okay. So um i guess in all the user research that you've done um for each of you what's been the most surprising finding um that you weren't expecting uh, and why uh, why did it surprise you so we'll start with erin and hopefully marissa your connection will come back um <laughs> such a hard question to answer that um i mean i can't really speak for the whole project just because nothing springs out I don't want to list the most important that's quite a lot of pressure <laughs> but I think the one of the things that's been surprising in some of the more recent work we've been doing around um around closing adverts is um is some of the things that users will assume or create in their own minds from an action being taken um that actually was never ever present in the first place and it's a really good example of when we need to consider some of these things because um, they're extremely negative. So the, the, so the example that I have in mind is, um, is around um, on NHS jobs. Um, when a job's listed, it's usually listed with the caveat saying that this job may um, close early. Um, and that's just kind of like a standard um, byline on, on, the, on a job advert. And what happens quite often is that employers are the ones we've spoken to. They have a, a really high influx of applications, like hundreds and hundreds. And so what more typically happens is they, they have an, a number that they know they will have to cap and end that vacancy early if that happens. So we did some research on this because we were looking into the notifications that need to happen and kind of some of the research in what are the user's expectations around um, notice periods and, and comms and that kind of stuff, um, some service improvement stuff. And one of the things, well, one of the more surprising things has been some of the things that users think about then the employer, which were never present. So, for example, um, oh, there, there must be somebody internally that they're already giving that job to, or um, oh, there was never really a job. Um, they were just sort of CV farming, or um, or or they're really disorganised. They mustn't know what they're doing because they've not been able to keep that job open. Like all these really, really negative. Um, things that have not actually been the case at all um, but because of that action being taken there's all these additional perceptions so I think that sometimes as well um, it's our job as a service to kind of make um, make the the employer side users aware that these are the connotations that can happen they can think quite negatively of you as an organization if you if you choose to to do this thing obviously um you know employers are free to use the service as they want to it's 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 a platform for them to use as they as they want to um, we're not dictating but it's we know 
the way we have this insight into users and the way that they may have these feelings um, and sometimes it is kind of on us to kind of educate employees to a, a best practice or an expectation side from the user um, and I think that's been the surprising thing is that you can go from something quite um, sort of small like closing an advert early and then unearth all these really <laughs> negative um, sort of feelings from people. Amazing. No, that's brilliant insight. Thanks, Erin. Um, Stephen, how about yourself? Um, what's been the most interesting finding for you? Yeah, this, this was tricky for me as well. Um, I don't necessarily have a finding that I'm going to give you in it. It's not surprising once you've spent a number of years in UR, um, but it's surprising at first. And it's a statement that people do not read. So we're here to produce content for a website and we're here to produce that content to make it easy for them to try and make the service as intuitive as possible. But in some cases, no matter what you try to do to make a piece of text read beforehand, um, if users decide they don't want to do that, they won't do that. They'll scan it, they won't read it properly, uh, and then they will wonder what has happened when they get later down the line. I guess the example of this that we have in, in the services where we're seeing it now is uh, the candidate homepage for NHS jobs. Uh, if you're visiting it at the moment, you're gonna see it doesn't have a search and you're gonna see there are a number of links below um, what, where there was a search, uh, the top banner, uh, to things like advice for job seekers and useful links and Q and A's. Uh, but when we were taking people through early iterations of this, uh, the statement that we most often heard was that searching for a job is my focus. And so I'm really unlikely to scroll down on this page even uh, with search taking up so much of that, of that first space there and being exactly what I want right in front of me, right from the beginning, why would I scroll down? Uh, and it's a theme that you pick up on as you do user research more and more. Content, it's very difficult to, to force people to read it. Uh, and you have to write it in such a way that they will understand it. Uh, so you have to ensure that content is in terms that people understand, doesn't use a lexicon that they're unaware of, like the word lexicon, uh, and um, is in plain English. Uh, otherwise, you have no chance of it being read. Uh, also, take into account kind of that, that aim that your user is going to have, uh, because they will... Uh, they will go off that focus. They will go off that direct aim. That's their, that's their purpose for being there. And so they will stick at that like a, a dog with a bone. They will, they will really, really kind of force that home. Um, and I guess the other side of it, again, a surprising finding overall, having done user research for a while, is just the speed at which online behavior evolves. Um, it's a it's a behavioral evolution. Uh, I always consider user research to be behavioral psychology for a very specific service site or thing. And uh, the speed at which people's behaviors change in this regard is huge. So biggest example, online shopping. Uh, if you remember maybe, I think now at this point, probably five years ago, there was uh, a tendency to have one page checkouts on stores where you were asked all the questions in one go on one page and then press the submit button at the bottom. And it had evolved from that into what we see nowadays, which is a much shorter but multi-page checkout process where it is broken down into multiple steps. 
which strangely enough is what it used to be before we had one-page checkouts. One-page checkouts were this trend that came in and we learned to adapt them, we learned how to use them, but just as quickly they went away. Uh, the other good example is the three dots menu on websites. If you can remember back to, again, roughly five years ago, there would never have been either a three line or a three dot menu. Uh, and now the hamburger menu or the three dot menu is used everywhere. Um, if you're looking at Zoom right now, there is probably an, an instance of a three dot menu somewhere on there. I know there is on Teams, there isn't actually on Zoom. Uh, I know there is on Teams and I know there is on loads of other services. And it just became uh, natural to use uh, because a few big sites started using it and they explained to you how it should be used. And then you took that behavior onto other services and sites as you went forward. So the, the change can happen in an instant. The change can happen in six months a year. And you do have to be ready to take that on, especially as new technologies are coming about. No, that's, that's really good. And some really good examples of um, design patterns that have come in and out over time as well. Um, but look, everyone, I just want to thank you all for um, joining me today on today's episode to have a little bit of a look at the user research work that's happening on the NHS job service. It's been fascinating to hear some of your stories uh, and experiences in delivering this. And uh, yeah, fantastic job, all of you. Thank you so much for everything you've done. And uh, yeah, of course, um, appreciate you joining me on the, on the show and uh, yeah, running through all of that stuff. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.